The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D. June Thomas welcoming you to The Afterword, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new non-fiction books. My guest today is Jacob Tomsky, whose new book, Heads in Beds, a reckless memoir of hotels, hustles, and so-called hospitality, has just been published by Doubleday. Jacob, thank you for coming into the Slate studio to talk about it. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Heads in Beds is a really great read. And it's basically the story of your career in the hotel business and what you learn from it with some tips for readers um, so they can get the most out of their own hotel stays. But you sort of fell into this world. You did not go to hospitality school. How did you come to be working in hotels? Yeah, super random. Uh, you know, and, I, and I do think uh, it's not a career that people seek out. Uh, I think that's growing now and hospitality degrees are growing. But I just uh, graduated with a philosophy degree, which left me with zero job prospects mm. whatsoever. Uh, so I started parking cars uh, at a restaurant and then I heard of a hotel opening. So I started parking cars at a hotel and that started uh, 10 years in the hotel business. I had no idea what, what was going to happen. Well, that first hotel that you worked in was this brand new luxury hotel in New Orleans, which you portray as being very well run. And you kind of described how one of the indicators of a high-end establishment is ostentatious overstaffing. What are the kinds of extra service that you get when you pay for the, the luxury hotel experience? Well, I guess one thing is turndown uh, or second service. Uh, that's something that really blows the average traveler's mind. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they all expect to come back, you know, somewhere around dinner time and have a clean room. Mm-hmm. But then when they go back out and then they come back and it's been refreshed again and the bathroom is refreshed again and then there's a robe and or like a rose and maybe the, the music is on low and right. just little, little touches like that. You know, a club level, uh, you know, certain presence presentations in the lobby, food presentations. There was, you know, chocolate carts that come around. Just like little teeny things that that, uh, you find add value and uh, sort of go above what you expect. I'd never heard of the club level. So tell us about that rarefied world, as you mentioned, that there are these these aspects. But also, is there any way of accessing those without paying a fortune? Sure. Um, Usually it's worth it. It's uh, even better than sort of like a flight upgrade to first class. Uh, But a club level will be exclusive access. You'll have a private concierge who will also be your front desk agent. You should be whisked up there immediately. Mm -hmm. So you have everything's taken care of on that level. And then they'll have food presentations daily between two to five, um, including, you know, complimentary beverages all day. So you do save a lot of money. You never have to eat outside. (laughs) I mean, if you you don't mind eating like hors d'oeuvres 24 hours a day, you can do that. You can book that, and it's usually worth the money that you'll save. But then again, uh, you know, there's there's ways to get upgrade. If you make a friend, you can just have club-level access. So mm-hmm. maybe your room's not on those floors, but uh, your key will get you access to the floor. So making a friend at the front desk or friends with the general manager even, uh, friends with anyone, good, <laughs> good way to get close. Well, we will, we'll get to some of those techniques later because uh, there's a word that begins with T that seems to be the, the, the key to all of those things. But um, <laughs> before then, throughout the book, you share facts about the way the hotel industry operates. And one of the nuggets that surprised me was that hotels routinely overbook, which occasionally requires front desk agents to walk a guest. Uh, How does that work? And is there anything a guest can do 
when they're put in that position. They like to book to 110% capacity because there's a 10% no-show rate. Uh, so it, it behooves the hotel to try to get ahead in every bed. Uh, but sometimes that does not work out. Uh, and we end up walking people. And it's a terrible situation for uh, everyone, including the staff, mm. uh, because people get extremely irate when you tell them that even though they have a reservation, they can't stay here. Um, so it does happen. Usually you're going to get a free night's room in tax. So, uh, you know, you can think of it, you know, the silver lining is that you got a free stay. Um, uh, you mean because the hotel the overboot will generally find you a new place and they'll pay for that first Absolutely. They are responsible for lodging you without a doubt uh, contractually and because of the problem they will comp your uh, stay at another hotel for the most part. If if a hotel walks you and they send you another hotel and they say, well, it's the same rate, then I would definitely never ever stay at that initial hotel again. But um, there's a lot of decisions on who gets walked. Mm -hmm. Um, Usually it's a one-nighter because if you walk a two-nighter or a three-nighter, then you're going to have to bring them back when the occupancy lowers the next day. Usually it can be based on rate decisions. Uh, you know, the, obviously you want the higher rates to be happier because if people are paying a higher rate, then it's like, oh, well, then, you know, this could be a loyal guest or someone mm-hmm. that, that really wants to stay here. Have you been here before? So there's really not necessarily a way to get out of that unless you really just want to scream and shout. You, you, that'll work if you just throw a huge fit in the mm-hmm. lobby we will find a room for you. <laughs> but it might not be a very pleasant experience. No, being... after that, you'll be sort of branded uh, as a screamer, which <laughs> is effective in yeah, the hotel yeah. world, but right. uh, you, you know, not necessarily the person you want to be, I wouldn't think. A good deal of Heads in Beds, as I mentioned earlier, in one way or another, is about the art of tipping. The best places to invest your crispy bills in the hotel world. And tipping the bellman seems to be a good choice, but as you point out, most of us these days have wheeled luggage. Mm-hmm. And I understand that bellmen have families to feed, but so do travelers. Why should travelers use a service that they don't really need? Usually, if, especially if you're traveling on vacation, uh, one, one of the most wonderful things about bellmen is that uh, almost 100% of the time they're born and raised in the city in which they're working. Mm. Um, so a lot of people are traveling and they want to see that destination, but they're going to find themselves herded into tourist spots where they're really just looking from the outside in. And uh, the bellman is going to be a prime example of a gentleman who will t- who will talk to you and take care of you and invo- involve himself in your stay who is of the city. And he's going to tell you places that the concierge won't tell you about because they have kickbacks and setups and things mm-hmm. like that and restaurants that they like and trust. But, you know, the bellman's going to tell you where to get like the cheap eats or mm-hmm. wh- where the fun bars are mm-hmm. or, you know, just little like events going on. Taking that service and taking the time to talk to someone of the city, is that alone can add to your stay. You say that once they become bellmen, people rarely leave that position, presumably because it's financially rewarding? Yeah. Um, you know, I was at one point I was offered the position of bellman, but they told me, like, look, if you take this job, you'll never work any other job because the pay jump is so extreme and it's gratuity-based. So it's like you leave work with cash in your right. pocket right. and going uh, going back to a position of waiting every two weeks for a check is going to drive you crazy and most people don't do it. So it's, it is sort of a career situation and, and uh, there's pleasant things about it. You know, you're mobile, like as, as a front desk agent, I had to stand at a desk 
all day. Yeah. Couldn't leave. Had to, you know, raise my hand to go to the bathroom. Bellman can disappear, you know, and you, they could be guest business. They could be at the bar next door. Uh, so there's a lot of freedom to it. And then, of course, you know, in most of the job, if you like dealing with people, uh, you know, it's just fun. But there, there are difficulties of the job. A lot of bellmen near the end of their career are going to have like, you know, shoulder problems and, sure. and foot problems and knee problems and stuff like that. So it's a very physically demanding job, but um, uh, it's made worth it by by uh, some of the some of the cash. Right. <laughs> when you were given that choice of being a bellman, you've also had another offer of being a housekeeping manager, I believe. Mm, yes. That seems to have been a miserable time, uh, very long work days and no tips. Why do people take those jobs when presumably they move into them from more livable, maybe even higher earning jobs in the hotel world? Well, as far as going into management, that would be someone who's ready to have a career in hospitality. There's two parts to running a hotel, and that's uh, housekeeping and front desk. If you can handle that system, checking people in, the billing, VIPs, you know, setting up reservations, and then once you get them here, you can make sure that they're staying in a wonderful room and that it's perfectly clean and running that staff and purchasing and ordering all the items. If you understand both sides of that, Mm -hmm. then you can effectively run a hotel, which means that you're, you know, on track to be a general manager and things like that. So um, that's that's why I took the position initially uh, in order to really learn that side of the business. Uh, It ended up being obviously incredibly exhausting. Housekeeping is one of the most physically demanding jobs. I would put it up against just about any job in America so difficult and I was managing but you know the the cleaning of the rooms was you know helping and assisting uh, assisting the ladies that I worked with was unbelievable so it would really have to be someone interested in in going for GM to to put themselves through that people want to get out immediately like after housekeeping you you want to get that out of the way essentially and then go back to the front office it seems like it does weed out a lot of people because if you can't stand that yeah you're not ready for the business (laughs) a lot of of disgusting stuff a lot of hardcore (laughs) cleaning uh, terror hours and a huge staff, a lot of purchasing. Yeah, if, you're, if you can't handle that, then you should probably, you know, <laughs> do something else. But then what else? That's exactly. kind of the question for me. I was like, what else do I do? So essentially you moved cities. Yeah, I kind of ran away from the business because uh, I got kind of scared because it was like it's getting too deep and the hours were getting too long. And, you know, I've, uh, I've always... Uh, been a lover of literature and a writer um, so uh, honestly on a personal note uh, which isn't necessarily in the book but uh, at that point I was uh, losing focus on my writing because of these long hours and I was like you know what I just need to take a break and see if uh, writing is for me and that's why I moved to Europe mm-hmm. uh, and uh, got an apartment in Paris and, and started writing you know full time spending all my savings uh, and then uh, found myself uh, ripped back into the business as soon as the money ran out <laughs> Well, we'll get to that in a little while, but first let's take a pause to give away some books. But first, I want to let you know that this month, The Afterword is sponsored by Audible.com. They're offering a free audiobook to any U.S. listener who signs up for a new 30-day free trial. Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the daily audio digest versions of The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal. I'm happy to say that Heads in Beds is available unabridged on Audible, with Jacob himself as the narrator. It runs eight hours and eight minutes, which sounds like a very auspicious running time. Jacob, how was the narration experience? Uh, That was wonderful. I I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to uh, do that. uh, And I actually requested. Mm. I was like, please let me do it. Uh, You know, because there's a lot of dialect in there and and Uh New Orleans has a particular way of speaking. It was a three-day session. 
So wonderful. <laughs> so much fun. That's awesome. Well, to get your 30-day free trial, which will allow you to download Heads in Beds or one of the other books available on Audible, go to audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. If you use that URL, the afterword will get credit. audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. Now, Doubleday has very kindly given us four copies of Heads in Beds to give away to listeners, and Jacob has signed them. If you would like one, send an email with the words Heads Giveaway in the subject line to slateafterword at gmail.com by 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, January 11th, 2013, and we'll choose four winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address, and if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterword at gmail.com. talking with Jacob Tomsky, author of the new book, Heads in Beds, a reckless memoir of hotels, hustles, and so-called hospitality. One of the practical tips you give is how to avoid getting placed in a bad room. What are we talking about when we say bad room? And how can travelers avoid getting stuck in one? A lot of things uh, come together to make a bad room. Uh, there's something called an obstructed view, uh, which is worse <laughs> worse than a bad view. It's like a wall um, <laughs> There's so that you could have no light. Uh, you know, there's a lot of dark rooms. There's, yeah, every building is structured differently. And, I, and that's one of the top lies that a hotel will tell you that all the rooms are the same size because there's so much variation. What happens is at the front desk, they're very familiar with these mm. rooms. So we know that there are bad rooms and there are good rooms, but we have to fill the hotel. So somebody's got to get them. So we're making these decisions at check-in, uh, sometimes based on reservation information. For example, if you did book through Internet, usually those are based on price. Mm-hmm. So as a business, the hotel is going to take those reservations. Uh, you know, They're going to put those aside towards people who booked natural reservations and chose to stay at the property mm-hmm. uh, because most people who book based on price didn't choose us. They just you know, got thrown to us. So mm-hmm. uh, they probably won't stay again. So that's going to be a, a consideration there when I'm checking someone in. Uh, and then from that physical information to you know, psychological information, like right. how you act and how yeah. you treat people. And if you're screaming and uh, saying uh, unkind things to uh, kind people, you will be put in those bad rooms. So the best tip is going to be to focus at check-in. If you make an internet reservation, one good thing to do is call to the property ahead Mm -hmm. because a lot of your requests didn't come through. And if you can just call two or three days out and speak to the front desk, not the 1-800 number, speak to the front desk and say, what do I have? I'm coming in. At that point, you become a human being Mm -hmm. as opposed to just sort of like a bulk mass reservation, you know, that got shoveled in. You're now talking to someone who's got a a personal connection to your room. And then again, when you check in, you really have to focus. People, you know, undervalue those moments at the desk, but that's when Everything is being decided, especially if you're there for like four or five days. Right. We're making all those decisions. So uh, it's important to uh, take that, that check-in process seriously. It's not, yeah. <laughs> it's not an ATM withdrawal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, that was surprising to me that it kind of comes through in the book that in a way the front desk agents almost have a sort of vigilante power. You know, yeah. that if people in the line are misbehaving and they're rude or nasty to the agent or other people in the line, the agent can kind of punish them in various ways. Yes, uh, in quite a few. And, or you know, reward them. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the wonderful things about the job. Not necessarily the punishing thing, but you can <laughs> have a good time with that uh, if you want. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's the point about the hospitality business and the hotel business. Uh, unlike the restaurant business or, or, or the airline business, you are really living with us. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of control that we have. When it comes to that, when, you know, we're deciding if we want to call you at three in the morning and wake you up. You know, right. there's the, the, it's just an endless list of ways, uh, and most of which guests will have no idea what's happening to them. Right. Uh, it's just their keys stop working, and they're yes. they're they're confused, or yeah. their credit card declines at the restaurant, and they can't figure it out. There's just a lot of ways, uh, and that was one of the interesting side effects of the job is being able to give good people great rooms and give bad people horrible rooms. Right. Having more than once arrived in a hotel early in the morning after a long flight and been faced by a very long wait to get into a room, I was interested in your section on early morning check-ins. Is there a way to avoid the wait? Yeah, absolutely. Um, What happens is, uh, for example, if the hotel the previous night was about 60% occupied, uh, then chances are 40% of the rooms are going to be ready in the morning. Mm. So let's say as a front desk agent, I'm working a morning shift. Now I have, uh, let's say, 40 rooms ready to go. People are going to be coming in off the plane, 7 a.m., 6 a.m., 8 a.m., whatever. They're coming in, and we're just getting rid of those rooms. We're just, Mm -hmm. you know, some VIPs will be checked in early and things like that. But um, for the most part, it's a first-come, first-served situation. But... People really come early for these yes. things. You know, somebody ha- always had an earlier flight than you. So yeah. one of the best uh, things you can do is give the hotel a call. Maybe even you're not going to be there till noon, but call at 7 before you even get on your on your plane and say, you know what, I'm, I'm on my way. If you could just pre-register me, you know, which is a hotel term, mm-hmm. if you could just really just pre-register me in a suite, I just want to make sure I have something ready, I'll be there soon. <laughs> uh, you know, the, in that case, you know, as a front desk agent, I'm going to go ahead and give you one of those, even though you're not there, uh-huh. because I know you're on your way. Yeah. Uh, and then when you walk in at noon, everyone else is storing their luggage and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you've been checked in, you know, for like four hours already. So Right. And if the hotel was full the night before, the hotel was just full the night before and you're going to have to wear anyway, right? There's Absolutely. nothing they can yeah, do. Yeah, there's uh, people who do have early morning, like business travelers who have like red-eye flights, they'll actually book the night before uh, and they'll pay for the room and tax just to have an unoccupied room yeah. sitting yeah. and waiting for them. So that, yeah, if it's sold out, you're going to have to wait because the housekeepers don't start cleaning usually till about 8.30 or 9. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes about an hour, hour and a half to flip a room depending on situation. So you really don't don't start getting, uh, you know, like any kind of rooms back to like noon. Mm-hmm. And then you've already got like a queue. Then there's right. a queue. So it's, right. you know, you got to wait in line after that. Hotels, at least in New York, where you moved after getting your start in New Orleans are heavily unionized. And you described uh, working at a hotel that was going through the unionization process. It seems like being in a union is a good thing for employees. Is it good for travelers? Probably not so much. It can be very strict as far as who can perform what job. Unions are designed to protect employees, mm-hmm. uh, and that's what's most important. And these employees do need protecting, mm-hmm. uh, especially in a business like the hotel business where the hours are long and the, yeah. the, the possibility of exploitation uh, is tremendous. Uh, getting people to do jobs that are not their job mm-hmm. uh, and making people stay late, uh, you know, these, these kind of things. In fact, uh, one of the things about the front desk is that it, it can't go unmanned. So in, the, in a way, this is uh, good uh, for the traveler. It cannot go unmanned. So right. if, if there's one person on the desk and then the overnight person calls out, you union worker must stay. Mm-hmm. So in that case, if you are coming in at two or three in the morning, you know, in a non-union property, there might be no one there or a manager or it's all jammed up yeah. and no one knows what's happening. But the union will make sure 
there is someone there to serve you. So you know there there are positives, but then you know in certain situations like. For example, if you wanted me to take away your room service tray, yeah. it's something that I would want to do as a service professional. Absolutely, I will mm-hmm. get this out of your out of your way, but I can't do that. So some of those things can affect the traveler, but for the most part, it, it in a way it also also helps with staffing. Yeah. So uh, if you have a union property, they're going to be properly staffed. Yeah. Uh, whereas another hotel, they might be trying to cut costs, and then that way you come back to your room and you're like, "Why wasn't my room clean?" And it's mm-hmm. like, well, that's because they're saving money and they only have. Five housekeepers, and those housekeepers are getting worked to a death, whereas in a union hotel, it would be done because Mm -hmm. the staffing is proper. To return to tipping, I was surprised to learn in a way that it's possible and perhaps recommended to what you might call pre-tip, which is my term, not yours. I like that. In other words, that you can kind of upgrade your trip by indicating to the front desk agent that even before you arrive, that you will be tipping him or her when you check in. Yeah. That that blew my mind. Yeah, it's, um, you know, like I'll take care of you is kind of like code, especially if you're calling in to have someone pre-register you because yeah. you're coming later to call in and be like, you know what, what's your name? I'll take care of you when I get there. I will be on top of it. <laughs> yeah. you know, I'll be sitting there like waiting for you. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's nice. Uh, the, the promise of a tip is nice. And, uh, you know, I'm sort of on a, a minor crusade about to change people's attitude towards tipping. Uh, people tend to think it's suspicious or, yeah, or yeah, sneaky yeah. Right, or right, slimy. Right, right. And it's really a little bit of kindness. Uh, I think, in it, you know, with 500 check-ins a day, getting a front desk agent to look up from their terminal is going to be difficult, no matter how kind and polite you are, because there's a lot of polite people out there. There's a lot of Thank kind goodness. people. There's a lot of people who have a lot of requests, and we're doing yeah. our best, but it, can't, it doesn't always happen. But that moment where uh, a gratuity is passed to a front desk agent, even at check-in, it can be very important because then I look up and I'm like, you know, it, that affects me directly. And the way it becomes kindness is because it, it's not money. It's not, I'm not going to spend that money on anything sleazy or anything. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? That's yeah. like what you've done is given me a better meal when I get out of work right. or I wasn't going to go out, but now I can go see my friends. And so that, that's a kind thing to do. You've, you sort of upgraded my life. Um, so then I, I can take that opportunity to upgrade yours. And one thing that occurred to me is that given the expense of hotel rooms, it's a very small uh, extra that can make a huge difference. So it's mm-hmm. just it's an investment. In a way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's not it's not infallible. Uh, you know, there's there's only so many upgrades. You know, as we talked about, uh, even within hotel rooms, there's a a huge variation. Mm-hmm. So a gratuity, no matter what, it, that way, if I look you in the face and I say, you are going to love this room, you, you can be absolutely certain that it is the best room of that type. And some of them have, you know, like it perks, like, yeah. for example, like a minor view of the park or, right. or little things like that that yeah, you might yeah. not know. And uh, if not, if nothing else, uh, you'll have someone on your side. Should anything come up, right, uh, right, I would right. be there to help you and uh, you know you'll have you'll have a friend, which can be invaluable when you travel. Absolutely, traveling. one of the surprising aspects of the book for me was that although it's full of practical information, as we've been describing, it's also in a way about management. By describing your career and what motivated you to provide exceptional service and what was counterproductive, you also kind of gave a masterclass in how to manage and motivate employees. Was was that something you were aware of when you were writing the book? Uh, actually, no. It was kind of um, it kind of came out at the end. I mean, clearly, that's what I was subject to. Yeah. Uh, I was, uh, you know, when I came into the business, I had wonderful management. Uh, then I became a manager, so I learned that mm-hmm. side of it. Uh, and then I went back down to a starting position, and I was managed well, and then poorly managed. So I really saw that 
from all angles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the end, I really suffered from poor management, and it was a terrible work environment. And uh, you really do learn a lot about how to treat people by having people treat you poorly. Now, I have to say, having read your book, that hotels seem like a fun place to work. You were telling me earlier it's now been almost two years since you actually worked in a hotel. You've been working on writing this book, and mm-hmm. which has done very well. Do you miss it? Yeah. I don't know. I, I miss my friends, and I, I still have my friends, yeah, and, and we, you know, we still go out and hang out, and they're you know, uh, proud of me and, and things like <laughs> that. But um, you, you know, once you leave the crew, you're out of the crew. It's like that with any job. Mm-hmm. If anybody's ever worked in a restaurant or whatever, mm-hmm. or any job, yeah. you, know, you, you leave it, and then you can still have your work friends from there, but about two minutes into the conversation or 10 minutes in, they're going to be talking about something that happened yeah. yesterday and you're, you're out of it. And I miss that. You know, in Heads and Beds, there's obviously a lot of hijinks. Uh, we, get up, <laughs> we get up to a lot of uh, uh, situations that I consider to be uh, a lot of fun mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, just having a great time at work and it's just a really interesting crew. So, yeah, I miss it. Uh, I miss it quite a bit. That was Jacob Tomsky, whose new book, Heads in Beds, is available in bookstores now. Thank you so much, Jacob. It's been a pleasure. If you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterword at gmail.com. Our engineer was Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. For Slate.com, I'm June Thomas.